It's so good to be with you guys uh, on this wonderful Advent Sunday. Uh, just so uh, you're, you guys are aware, we have about uh, probably 130 households represented online this morning. So can we give them some love today? So glad that you're here in person, online. Um, as you guys know, we are in the middle of a short Advent series as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. Advent simply means arrival. It's the arrival of uh, something or someone. And Advent is really uh, less about a period of time on the calendar. and It's more about a posture of the heart. If I could put it succinctly, uh, Advent is, a, is a, uh, a posture of intentional tension. It's an intentional posturing of the heart between the reality that Jesus has come and the reality that there is something not yet complete. There's something that remains unfinished. And Advent is where we rest our souls in the space between longing and rejoicing. Rejoicing that he has come and longing for him to come once again. We faithfully celebrate what has come in order that we might fully comprehend what will come. This is the purpose of Advent, to allow God's past faithfulness to increase our future expectancy. Last week, we looked at the advent of joy, and this morning, we are going to be focusing on the advent of love. Our passage this morning is uh, one that's very familiar to many of us, John 3, 16 uh, through 17. The Apostle John writes, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Church, this is God's holy and righteous word. Let's pray together. Lord, we're confronted with two very familiar things this morning. The familiarity of Christmas, a season that we celebrate every year. Some of us have celebrated this holiday for decades, and we're also confronted with this very familiar passage of Scripture that many of us know. And so I just want to ask this morning, Lord, that you would breathe fresh life into these words, that you would be, breathe fresh life into this season for us, Lord, that can so easily become lost in the ritual and the habit and the tradition and the celebration, Lord. I believe that there is something so radically powerful about this season and Lord, I really believe that you do want to speak to us, that you want to meet us today. So I ask that you would, as your word goes forth, would you meet us today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Interstellar is, I think, probably my top, in my top three favorite movies of all time. If you haven't seen it, you really need to see it. It's a great, great movie. Uh, and the film, uh, if you haven't seen it, the film follows a crew of astronauts who are sent into deep space uh, in an attempt to save humanity from extinction. And one of the best lines in the whole film is delivered by Anne Hathaway's character. Uh, her name is Brand, and she's this scientist aboard the ship Endurance. And uh, Matthew McConaughey's uh, character, Cooper, uh, he's accusing her of letting love cloud her judgment, which is putting the crew at risk. And uh, this is how she responds, and it's the best line in the entire film, I think. She says, listen to me when I tell you that love isn't something we invented. It's observable, powerful, 
Why shouldn't it mean anything? Maybe it means more, something we can't understand yet. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of higher dimensions that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen for a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we are capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that yet, even if we can't understand it. What Brand is getting at in, in that line is that love is a powerful cosmic force. Love finds its origins uh, outside of the reach of our scientific instruments and our logical calculations, and yet it is something that we can see and feel and touch. Though it often feels foreign and alien, love uh, reaches and captures the most inner parts of our soul. Love motivates, love moves, love propels. It pays little attention to the odds. It defies probabilities. Love circumvents our instincts of survival and self-preservation. Love might just be the most transcendent force in the universe. And our text this morning in John's gospel provokes a similar idea of the propulsive and powerful nature of love. Like I said, most of us, Christian or not, are familiar with John's words here. In fact, I'd venture to say that these two verses are the most famous and quoted words in all of the Bible. But I believe that there is a cosmic reality to John 3.16 that unlocks the true meaning of the Christmas story. In order to understand that reality, we need to go back a few chapters uh, to the prologue of John's gospel in John chapter 1. John 1 says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word, referring to Jesus, uh, was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. In other words, before the existence of universes and galaxies and solar systems and planets and time and space and gravity, for all of those things, there was God alone. But God actually wasn't alone. Look at that verse again. Look at verse 1 again. It says, John, uh, John says, the Word was with God and the Word was God. That's an interesting paradox How can Jesus both be God and be with God simultaneously? John is uh, tapping into one of the most mystifying and complex theological concepts in all of Christianity, which is that God exists in community. He always has and he always will. The Christian faith believes that God exists in triune form, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. One God in three persons existing in perfect relationship with one another. And the connective tissue of the Trinity, what holds the Trinity together, what holds Father, Son, and Spirit together is love. We see this all throughout Scripture. We see the Father uh, and the Spirit, both, uh, both of them, delighting in the Son. We see Jesus love and defer to both the Father and the Spirit. And we also see the the Spirit revealing Jesus and pointing to the Father. There's this wonderful scene in Matthew chapter 3 that really encapsulates this this love relationship between the Trinity. It's where Jesus gets baptized uh, by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And, uh, And as Jesus comes out of the water, it says the heavens were opened and the Spirit of God descended upon him. The Spirit of God descended upon Jesus 
And then the voice of the Father from the heavens. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 3 is a moment of Trinitarian delight. We see from Scripture that the persons of the Trinity are all inextricably connected by love, and each uh, person of the Trinity rejoices and glorifies the others. Now, this is a really crazy concept. So as early theologians uh, were trying to wrap their finite minds around the infinite nature of the Trinity, uh, they adopted this phrase, uh, perichoresis. Perichoresis is just a fancy Greek word that means uh, circular dance or round dance. It's the kind of dance that you would see at a Greek wedding. Uh, three or more people dancing in a circle, moving faster and faster, all in perfect synchronization with one another until it just became a blur, one person indistinguishable from the other. Theologian Jonathan Marlowe describes it this way. He said, the early church fathers looked at that dance, the perichoresis, and said, that is what the Trinity is like. It's a harmonious set of relationship in which there is mutual giving and receiving. This relationship is called love, and it's what the Trinity is about. The perichoresis is the dance of love. In all of this, we can say that God's very existence, his being, is love. In his epistle, the Apostle John would later pen the famous words that we've seen on coffee mugs and Christian calendars our whole lives. God is love. God is love. In his book, uh, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis once said this about the meaning of that phrase, God is love. So good. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the statement that God is love. But they seem to not notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. To say that God is love is to believe that the living, dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that because God has, uh, is love and has always been love, then by nature what God creates must be an expression of love. We see this uh, very clearly uh, in the creation story, this pattern of, ex of the expression of God's love, right? We see it in that pattern uh, of which Genesis is written. It says, God said it was, and he saw that it was good. Another way of translating that is to say that God said it was and he saw that it was lovely. It was pleasing. It was the same thing that an artist does when he steps back from the canvas and sees himself in the painting. God is stepping back from what he has created and he is seeing his expression of love and it gives him great pleasure. And God saves the, the greatest fullest, most wonderful expression of his love for last. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. Notice that plural language there. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all over the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. 
what we learn about ourselves from the creation story is that we were made in love, by love, and for love. As people who are created in the image of God, who is love, we were actually created to be a part of the perichoresis, the divine dance, what C.S. Lewis called the divine activity of love, to be one with God. That is what life was supposed to be in the garden. God with man, man with God, an eternal loving relationship. But sin would ultimately break down this love relationship. And it happened in the same way that all relationships break down. Distrust. On that fateful day beneath the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent sowed distrust in the heart of Adam and Eve. Right? Is God really good? And that distrust gave way to sin. They took matters into their own hands. They ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what sin did is it gave way to fear. They feared for their safety. That is why they heard God and, in, in the garden and they hid themselves. Fear and love are actually repelling forces. They're uh, opposed to each other. Love always moves outward toward the other. If you've ever been in love with someone, and I'm sure a lot of us here have been in love, you know exactly what that feels like. You just want to be with them. You just want to give them stuff. My wife and I had been dating for one month, and I was in New York City, and I was like, I have to go buy her a bracelet from Tiffany's. One month. I spent $300 on this bracelet from Tiffany's just on this person because I loved her so much. I was so in love with her. I said, I just want you to have this. I just want you to have this expression of my love. Love moves outward. And in contrast, fear always moves inward toward the self. Fear is always concerned with self-preservation. It produces bitterness, anger, jealousy, even hate. Fear and love are diametrically opposed, right? They can't coexist. One of those things, fear or love, will eventually consume the other thing. And that is precisely what happened to Adam and Eve. Fear destroyed their love for God. The story of the Old Testament is that for generation after generation, the cycle of distrust Sin, fear, and the destruction of love playing itself out over and over and over and over again on repeat. God's people continually falling prey to a pattern of sin, distrust, and fear. But the good news is that even when God's people kept choosing fear, God never stopped choosing love. Even in their rebellion and pride and wickedness and selfishness, God's love never left. He never gave up on his people. And this love was found in a promise. It was a promise that had its roots all the way back in Eden. A promise to a people lost in fear and rebellion. A promise that one day there would come an act of love so great, so majestic, so powerful, that not even fear itself could stop it. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. There's a reason that we call Jesus Emmanuel. It's not just because he was born as a baby. It's not just some cute Christmas name that we throw at Jesus. Jesus is called Emmanuel because Jesus restores Emmanuel. Jesus restores God with us. Jesus brings us back into a love relationship with God the Father. Jesus brings humanity back into the perichoresis, into the divine dance of love. That was God's purpose in sending Jesus to fulfill his promise of redemption to a people of rebellion, to redeem through love that which he created in love. That is the reason for the Messiah. That is the reason for Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That word uh, that uh, John uses for world is the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos is God's creation, but it's more than just the physical world. Cosmos uh, refers to the spiritual condition of creation, encompassing both good and bad. Cosmos is, it's like the garden and the fall all wrapped up into one. It's the sum of our greatest achievements and our greatest failures. This is the world that Jesus came to, a world created by love, but corrupted by sin and fear and shame and rebellion. The fact that we needed a savior reveals the crushing weight of our depravity, but it also reveals the immeasurable depths of God's love. For God so loved the world that he tore open the heavens to save a people who turned from him. For God so loved the world that he subjected himself to their pain and their suffering. For God so loved the world that he gave up everything that he had for them. When I think about this kind of love, I, I can't help but be reminded of Jesus' most famous story, which is the, the parable of the prodigal son. And I actually think that this story is the best Christmas story never told. Most of us uh, think that this parable is about the prodigal son. It's called the prodigal son. Uh, we think that the prodigal son is the main character, but he's not. This story is actually about the father. It's a story of a father's prodigal love. Prodigal simply means reckless or spendthrift, having spent everything. This is a story about prodigal love. This father's son had demanded his inheritance, which was the Hebrew equivalent of saying, you're dead to me. You are a disgrace to me. I want nothing to do with you. In fact, I hate you and I am better off without you. His son might as well have been flipping the bird on his way out of the house. And just like that, he's gone. And we know uh, from reading the story what happens to the son, but I want to keep the focus this morning on the father. Months, maybe years later, the father sees his son on the horizon. That implies that he's been waiting. The father has been waiting for his son. He's been watching, waiting for his return. 
And then the father does something crazy. He begins to run. And that run becomes a sprint. The father is running so fast that he's leaving a trail of dust in his wake. And it's not clear at this point what what the father's going to do. Maybe he's going to knock his son out. Maybe he's going to curse him out. At the very least, kick him out. You can feel the tension start to boil over as these two characters converge on each other. And then the unthinkable happens. The father throws his arms around his son, around his broken and rebellious son in an overwhelming embrace. He he bear hugs him. And in the most unexpected turn of events, he lifts his son's head up and he kisses him. Against all the odds, And all the probabilities and the logic, the Father's love prevails. Christmas is the kiss of a good and perfect Father upon his broken and rebellious children. Christmas is the lips of a holy God meeting the lament of a hopeless people. It's the divine Savior born in the dirt of our sin and shame. It's the righteous meeting the rebellious. It's the way meeting a wayward world. The truth appearing in tribulation. The life showing up in the midst of languish. Christmas is the Lord entering into our mess when we could not find our way out of it. It is the king of all kings becoming nothing so that you and I could find everything. Christmas is God giving up his godness for the sake of the godless. That is love embodied. That is Christmas. And friends, you can't take that kind of love and put it in a box and wrap a nice ribbon around it. You can't get one day prime shipping on that kind of love. You can't save up enough money to earn it. You can't even put a deposit on it. That kind of love cannot be delivered down your chimney by a fat man in a red suit. That kind of love can't be packaged or contained. It can't be commercialized or consumerized or codified in a Netflix special. That kind of love can only be lived. And Jesus lived it. Jesus, who, though he was God, though he was God, emptied himself of his divine privilege taking on the form of a bond servant, the lowest of the low, being made in human likeness in our image. Sometimes it's easy to forget that Jesus laid his life down long before he died. And while his sacrifice culminated on a cross at Calvary, it began in a manger at Bethlehem. In the most unexpected and unorthodox of places, under the most unexpected and unorthodox of circumstances, in the middle of darkness and fear and guilt and shame and sin, love came and lived among us. Love became skin and bone and flesh and blood. And the good news, the good news is that 2,000 years later, in the most unexpected and unorthodox of circumstances, In this age of darkness, love still lives. Love is alive today. That same love that ripped open the heavens is still reverberating through the earth today. 
The same love that shook the foundations of history is still trembling today. The same love that lit up the sky over Bethlehem is still shining today. That same love that broke the bondage of slaves, the same love that gave orphans a name, the same love that defeated the grave, that love is alive today. Somebody please say amen. Because although Jesus might have ascended into heaven, his love didn't go anywhere. Jesus might not walk the earth, but his love walks with anyone who would call him savior. And that, friends, is good news of great joy. So if you want to truly embrace Christmas this year, If you want to embrace this Advent season, the best thing that you can do is realize how radically loved you are by God. For God so loved you. For God so loved you that he sent his one and only son into the depths of your mess, into the atmosphere of your brokenness, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to the front lines of your rebellion, all that you might be saved. Why would God do this? Why would God willingly give up his most prized possession for a people who wanted nothing to do with him? The answer is love. Because God redeems in love that which he creates in love. Because only love can compel someone to lay down their life for those who despise them. Only love can bring the fulfillment of John 3.16, the everlasting life found in salvation. God is so compelled by love that he can't help but go to the darkest of the dark places, to the brokest of the broken people, to the lostest of lost children. It's who God is. Jesus coming at Christmas is God's love put on display. During the Advent season, all of us are confronted with the cosmic paradox of God's love. It defies our logic. It evades our rationality. The love of God doesn't compute or fit into our equations or formulas about how the universe should operate. The love of God doesn't parse evenly into our paradigms and our worldviews. By every reasonable measure, the love of God should not exist. But every Christmas, there it is, staring us straight in the face. The Messiah in the manger. The creator of the universe in the cradle the savior of the world in the swaddle, the king of heaven laid helpless on the hay, the love of God embodied as an infant child. The truth is that it's impossible. It's impossible for us to reconcile the love of God, to make sense of God's love. We were never meant to reconcile the love of God, but the love of God was always meant to reconcile us. And friends, that's the whole point. That is the reason for Christmas. That is the gift of Christmas. Through the birth and life and the death of Jesus, we can once again be reconciled to a good and perfect Father. 
that you and I can be swept up into the divine dance of eternal love that we were made for. The question for us is not necessarily whether or not we believe it. The question is, what will we do with it? What do we do with the love so great that we can't reconcile it? The answer is that we allow it to reconcile us. Reconciliation is simply the opposite of distance. It's the opposite of separation. And that's what Christmas really is all about, isn't it? It's about the removal of distance between a holy God and a sinful humanity. 2,000 years ago, at Christmas, Jesus came to the earth, to the dirt, to the lowest of the low, when humanity could not remove the distance of separation, when we couldn't even narrow the gap, God did it. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus removed that distance. He did it for humanity, and he did it for your heart. And it started at Christmas. So today, be reconciled by the love of God. Let the love of God remove the distance in your heart between you and him. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we thank you for your great love today. We thank you for your great love. It sacrificed itself 2,000 years ago to come down to a city on the outskirts, to lowly people, to a broken humanity. Lord, we recognize this morning that in ourselves there is brokenness. In our own hearts there is rebellion. And Jesus, in the same way that you came to the earth 2,000 years ago, you are still faithful. You're still faithful, Lord, to come to the dirt of our own hearts all that we might be reconciled back to you. Lord, I just specifically want to pray for the heart this morning that feels far off, that feels distant, that feels disconnected from you. Thank you, God, that you made a way for us to be swept back into the divine circle of love, into that divine dance that we were made for so we rejoice in that today we rejoice in that today that is good news of great joy that love has come that love is here that love lives today and it's available to us it doesn't make any sense God I can't rationalize it at all but there it is the love of God here on the earth available to any who would receive it Help us to see that today. Help us to see your love today, God. This morning, if you want to receive the love of God, if you want to be reconciled back to God, the Bible says today, I urge you today, be reconciled to God. That love is available to you. We have a wonderful prayer team in the back, uh, back corners over there. They would love to pray for you. Wherever you're at, 
wherever you're at this morning with God. Allow his love to meet you. Allow his love to transform you. And although love might be a cosmic reality, that, that love came down, it's also a personal choice you have to make. Every one of us has to make to allow love to reconcile us. So today, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to him. Amen.